I would love to listen to the Meet 40 podcast with Elizabeth and Mark Allen Miller. This is Lux from the band Small Giants, and you're listening to the Meet 40 cast. That's the record button. Have we started? We have started. So, this is the Meet for Tea cast. You might always start like that. Who knows? Hello and welcome. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Meet for Tea cast. Season 4, episode 28. This time around, Elizabeth has a conversation with author, writer, Francesca Bell. I'm Elizabeth, by the way, and that would be my husband. I'm Mark Allen Miller. Welcome. And I have a lovely conversation with Francesca Bell about her new book, What Small Sound. She's doing a reading tour for it now. She's recently in some cool bookstores in Seattle, and I think she's in San Francisco now. She's making the rounds. She's doing readings. I think she had a reading in L.A., she mentioned. So, yep. Yeah. You can follow her on Instagram or on Facebook. She'll give that at the end. And... You can find out if she's coming to a bookstore near you. It's a fabulous book. You'll hear some readings from it, some discussion of her influences, and just some wonderful conversation in general, because she's a delight to talk to. Yeah, the conversation is really, really enjoyable. Yeah. As we are recording this, I have just finished editing what you're about to hear, and I gotta tell you- Be excited, folks. Yeah, a lot of fun. We're really happy today because we have a new review. Mm. Yay! In Good good Pods. Good Pods. Where we are holding firm in our ranking in the performing arts category, in the indie performing arts category. We are number one. Number one. And last time I checked, in the non-indie performing arts category, and last time I checked was yesterday, because I monitor these things. <laughs> we were number three. Under Hidden Brain. Under Hidden Brain and The Moth, and, the and moth. then there's us, and Snap Judgment was Snap beneath judgment. us. So. It's good company to keep, I gotta say. Hidden Brain and The Moth were coming for you. <laughs> I'm sure they're quaking in their boots. They are. I can, I can feel the tremors from here. <laughs> so anyway, we do have the tremors. They better stop. They're going to make my mic shake. They're shivering. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to denoise the track just to get rid of the rumble. There they are. Could be more like... I was being careful. <laughs> okay, I'll leave that in. So on Good Pods, you can... Please rate and review us. Five stars with writing. Copy and paste it into Apple Podcasts and do a twofer for us. And that's really great because it really does help us reach. Or the other way around. Or the other way around. (laughs) Wherever you listen to your podcast, if you can rate and review it. Yeah, I noticed in Spotify, there's a place that you can't really leave a review with writing. And we like reviews with writing because then we can read them. Yes, which we love to do. And we also love if you are feeling bold, if you just read your own review, send it in a voice memo. 
record it on your phone or whatever and send it to meetfortcast at gmail.com. We'll probably play it on the podcast. We love voices other than ours. But we do have one from Diane Germain. Thank you, Diane Germain. About a week ago. Where is she from, I wonder? Might it be our friends at Splendor Solace Bookstore? Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. That is who we are talking about. But she says, great podcast. Elizabeth and Mark really know how to engage the listeners so you feel as if you're in their living room for some wonderfully engaging and funny conversations. Grab a cup of tea and have a listen. You won't regret it. Thanks, Thank Diane. you, Diane. Much appreciated. It, reviews like that really help us bump our, our ratings up in the algorithms and, you know, allow more people to hear us. So You'll want to check out our podcast episode with Diane and her husband, Kevin, which was two episodes ago. Yeah. So, yeah, you can check out that episode with Diane and Kevin Germain of Splendor Slowies Books, Season 4, Episode 26. It's great. And speaking of Splendor... Solace, this is a good natural natural segue. We are collaborating with them on a book launch for Lindsay Atkins' new chapbook of poetry, Fixing the Halo, which she did with us. If you're local to the area or if you enjoy a long drive or a plane flight or a train, we won't discourage travel. <laughs> Come to Splendor Solace on June 9th. It's going to be part of Arts Night Out, Northampton, 6 p.m. And you'll hear Lindsay reading from her book. There will be copies that she'll be glad to sign for you, available for purchase. It's going to be a big, splashy literary event, and my homemade sourdough bread will be there mm. for as long as it lasts. Mm-hmm. And other refreshments. <laughs> Very good. Should we get a little housekeeping out of the way before we yeah. let people into this conversation you had? All the best ways to support us can simply be found on our website at meatfortea.com, M-E-A-T-F-O-R-T-E-A dot com. There you'll find the link to our podcast on Good Pods, to our spring store, where there's a lot of cool stuff and we're going to be adding more. Just in time for summer. Just in time for summer. We do have beach towels already. Yep. So get them while they're hot. And who doesn't want to lie on the sand on a meatini <laughs> beach towel? It's just refreshing. It's like you're lying in a giant martini glass. You can subscribe to Meat for Tea. You can purchase individual copies. If you like to have your house devoid of things on your shelves, you can simply purchase PDFs for $5 a pop. At that price, you could collect every single issue we have available and really not be too broke. Hmm. I wonder if we should offer a package deal. Yeah, we're thinking about doing that. Speaking of um, issues you might want to collect, um, maybe some of you have been enjoying painting with John. We have two issues with John Lurie covers. Go look on our website. The first of them has an exclusive interview with him. We have an issue with a custom design David Yao cover. We have an issue with a cover by Xander Berkeley. There's an issue where Anne Serling gives us a excerpt from her book about her life with her dad. There's a lot to go back to. Rod Serling. Yes, her dad, Rod Serling. Do, 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 do. I would say if you don't own those, your collection is lacking some cool things. There's a hole in your bucket, dear Liza. (laughs) 
one more exciting thing. Oh, okay. We have a fiscal sponsor, which means we will soon be assuming nonprofit status, which means our donations next time people donate are going to be tax deductible. Which is a nice thing. We haven't signed the paperwork yet, but just just be excited. It's coming in the coming week. Be very excited. We are partnering with Gateway City Arts, and we love them. Ooh, speaking of Gateway City Arts. Oh, right. One more thing. We have a Cirque. June 17th. June 17th, 7 p.m. is the Cirque du Bambou Givre. And we have Frost Heaves and Hails and the Bamboo Steamers rocking the house. We have a fantastic film by the sadly deceased and sorely missed Brian Dulock in collaboration with Dan Hales of Moths and Men. Mm -hmm. It's a surrealistic noir piece of filmmaking. Lots of spoken word. We'll have as usual our spoken word and we'll be Mm -hmm. celebrating the release of the loaf issue, which as per the use will be discounted the night of the event. That's at the Divine Theater, Gateway City Arts, Race Street, Holyoke. We're so happy to be collaborating with them. Yeah, it's great. That theater is so beautiful. Too. It's gorgeous. Vitex paintings. And if you're local and looking for a place to eat, mm-hmm. let me give Judd's Restaurant and their Czech American Cuisine a plug. Yeah, that was really good the other night. Oh my God, the homemade sauerkraut, the homemade caraway bread, pickled beets. So much to rave about. Yep, very good. Highly recommended. Yes. Okay. We just gave them a free ad because we love them. Yeah. And that's what we do. So, hmm, now have we done it? We Kinda. haven't. We finally have done it. <laughs> let's let's kill the suspense and let uh, let the listeners enjoy a conversation with Francesca Bell and Elizabeth McDuffie, the one and only, right here. Hmm. <laughs> Enjoy. Hello, Francesca. Hello, Elizabeth. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well also. You're on a book tour? I am. I am. My book was just released on the 9th, and I've given several readings already, and I'm in the Seattle area today. I should officially announce you and we'll we'll get back into just chit-chatting. So it's my honor to introduce Francesca Bell to the Meet for Tea cast listeners, who is gracious enough to take time out of her book tour to have this conversation with us. Thanks so much, Francesca. You're so welcome. Thanks for asking me. Oh no, I'm it's my honor. I actually just got done listening to a very excellent podcast on which you were a guest. You were talking about and reading the poems of Anne Sexton. Yeah. The Hive. Yes, with Dion O'Reilly. Yes. That was a really fun podcast. Oh, such a great listen and such great reading selections and i i'm also a, a huge lover of ann sexton yes she's really been a foundational poet for me 
I first read her when I was probably about 12. I found her books at our local public library. And, um, and I just, I don't know, she, I think she's a part of why I wanted to become a poet. That's really young to be reading Anne Sexton. It is. Uh, my parents used to take us to the local library every Saturday. We moved quite a bit, so there were different local libraries. And they never did, um, they didn't censor what we read. And I was interested in poetry, and um, the local library happened to have several of, several of her books. And I was, I was, I was probably, um, I was rather mature for 12 already. Yeah. I, I would, I would think maybe so if you were gravitating <laughs> towards Anne Sexton. I don't, I don't think I read her until later. Maybe I was, well, not that much later, maybe 15 or 16, not at the public library, but I think in, in my parents library of books which they also didn't censor there was a really enormous bookshelf kind of downstairs on on the way to the stairway upstairs and we could just grab anything that we wanted off of it to read so well i'm impressed you had parents who had Anne sexton well yeah yeah my my, my there there are literary sorts my, my dad was president of the New England Educational Library Association first and then founder of the New England Educational Media Association. So that came with a, a very vast, diverse assortment of books in the house, which was of benefit to me. That's a treasure. Yes. Yeah, I, I think he probably got a chuckle out of some of the things I'd grab off that huge communal bookcase and um, bring up to my room to read because starting around 10, I wanted to look for what might be prurient. <laughs> yes. Yes, I was also on the prowl for the prurient. <laughs> yes, I did read several prurient passages from several prurient books. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I'm sure at the time I was 12. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, was, I was on the quest, but oftentimes I failed in my mission. And of course, uh, that, that quest is always in search of the good parts, which I still think would be a great title for a collection of writing. It actually would be. <laughs> the good parts. So, or search of the good parts would be also good. Right? It, it absolutely yeah. would be. So um, I slogged through all of de Beauvoir's The Second Sex when I was 10, thinking because of wow. the title. <laughs> it was such a hard read. Especially at 10. <laughs> wow. And I, I stuck with it. I remember I read every single word and every single page certain that with that title, I, I didn't know the. I was 10. I, I didn't know the feminist act she was doing or the play on words or any of it. Uh, fifth grader. And that's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, guess, I guess when you're on the quest for prurient material, then you'll, you'll stick it out. <laughs> you get an education <laughs> despite yourself. Yes. That was, that was really false advertising. <laughs> 
that title. That's pretty funny. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I did the same thing later. You think I would have learned, but Desmond Morris's The Naked Ape was also on the shelves. <laughs> and I, the, the word <laughs> naked had promise, I thought. <laughs> it did. The titling is actually cruel if you look at it through a child's eyes. <laughs> I learned a lot about, I think now, outdated anthrozoological evolutionary <laughs> ideas and why baboons' butts were the color they were and things like that. <laughs> well, my mother would read books that were, I guess, kind of like Jackie Collins kind of books, you know, that were um, sort of romances with torrid sex scenes. So I was probably a lot more successful in my quest than you were in yours, but you received a better education. <laughs> well, my, my mom also had a predilection for, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if it's fair to class Erica Young Zhang. Is it Zhang or Yang? I was Zhang. Zhang. Erica Zhang. Erica Zhang. She read Fear of Flying. And I, I think I was around 12 when I got my hands on that. Scratched my head over that whole zipless fuck. Yeah, the zipless business. fuck. And uh, 12, but I, I had neither started menstruating nor grown breasts, <laughs> was very much a virgin. <laughs> yeah, it would be hard to get your head around the zipless fuck. It was, I was intrigued. Yes. <laughs> yes, even just the phrase zipless fuck is very intriguing. Yeah, it was a big leap from, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. <laughs> giant, <laughs> giant leap. <laughs> Have you watched that movie? Yeah, oh my gosh. Yes, yes. I actually... Just finished it last night. And is it good? The Judy Bloom documentary. You know, it 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 is. It, it mostly is. It's it's worth watching. Oh, good. I I, I like it. I like her. I'm I'm a big admirer. Oh, she has had an amazing career. Really, really incredible. Yeah. No, I I think I give it four out of five stars. No, that's. I mean, that's a lot. It, it is a lot. I'm not sure where that extra star, uh, what's making that not present for me. But it is it is very lovely, and especially her discussion of what it was like to have her works so vociferously censored. Mm. And the arguments, like, like Deanie has a moment where the girl masturbates and it's just alluded to it and that she put her hand on her special spot i mean it's not not very graphic but you know she she was called on the floor in front of edwin meese and wow yeah so it, it goes into good detail about all that and it also follows a woman who had been reading her since she was a girl and wrote her letters wow. often. And Judy Bloom saved. She had boxes and boxes filed of all the letters she'd received from all the children wow. who wrote to her. 
So that alone makes it worth the watch, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'll definitely watch it. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And it's a kind of fascinating look. And especially now that we're re-entering um, the, the dark ages of book banning and books being taken out of schools and school libraries. Yeah, something I find fascinating about this era is that actually you have censorship when it comes to literature coming from both the left and the right. Um, because, you know, there have been books that have been, you know, essentially canceled even before they've come out um, by people on the left who, you know, found them offensive in one way or another or insensitive. And then you have, you know, the people on the right who are seeking a different type of purity but are trying to ban books. And I, I think that's very fascinating about this particular time. Yeah, I find it so too. I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of which books were um, canceled by by, people. by the left. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to. I'm, I'm not. You know, I mean, I'm not coming up with a title. I don't well, doubt it. No, I'm thinking um, of one example. Is um, there was a trilogy of three books. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, that was redundant. There's a trilogy of <laughs> fantasy <okay>. books. <laughs> and um, I'm trying to look it up because I, I can't remember the titles. And these were books, they were written by a woman um, who was Chinese, but lived in, uh, lives in New York. She was a young writer, and she had sold these three books to one of the big five publishers. Good for her. And when I think it must have been when the advanced reader copies went out of the first book in the trilogy, people on Twitter took after her and they asserted that her books, um, which were again, fantasy were essentially appropriating the history of slavery of blacks in the U S it was really not the case, but there was such an uproar that, um, that she pulled the, the book and didn't have it published and wow. some time passed. And then she ended up, I think maybe she made some revisions and then, um, and then at least that first book was published. And, and I, I read about, you know, from, her, I read when she wrote those books, she was, there, there is, um, you know, slavery involved in the books, but she was thinking about um, the enslavement of peoples um, throughout the history, more of Asian cultures. And she wasn't um, thinking at all about the history of the enslavement of blacks in America, but the people on Twitter really took after her and mounted a big campaign, you know, to, to essentially censor the book. Oh, wow. And there was another example of that that didn't, it didn't cause, the book I think did, it did come out, but it had received a starred Kirkus review. And I'm, I'm, I can't remember the name of that book either. And it had been read by sensitivity readers, um, but people took umbrage. I can't remember the details of what they took umbrage about, but it was people, it was, um, it was from the progressive end of things. It was not the, you know, from the, the right. So there really is this um, kind of competing censorship going on. And, and the people on the left aren't so much trying to have books removed from schools, but they mount more of these Twitter campaigns to try to destroy books before they're released or upon their release if they find them somehow insensitive or um, that they could potentially offend someone. Which is just as 
just as harmful, if not even more so, because that's just stopping a book dead in its tracks. Yes, and I find it fascinating that um, that writers are are mounting these campaigns of censorship. I find that fascinating because in the past it would be writers who would you know be uniformly wanting there to be no censorship. Um, but in fact, um, there's kind of a faction of writers nowadays who really do want a certain type of censorship. And I'm a person personally who, you know, I would much rather have complete freedom of speech mm-hmm. and I don't mind people offend me or try to offend me. I'm almost impossible to offend, but I, I prefer, you know, that there be, you know, really very, very broad, a broad definition of freedom of speech. Yeah. So I, I, I disagree with the censorship on both sides. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I, f- I find it just really problematic. And especially if, if the measure is that which has the capability to offend shouldn't exist. Well, that eliminates a lot. Well, it eliminates everything. Pretty because much. Every, everyone has a different thing that could possibly offend them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think about like Shakespeare's body writing. Um, just, I, I think people might find the wife of Bath from the Canterbury Tales to be an offensive figure. I, I mean, my goodness, you, you could really eliminate. Yeah. If you go looking for offense, you can find it anywhere. I agree. Yeah. I used to, when I was teaching college English classes for a few semesters, I themed my English 102, you know, the intro to lit Mm -hmm. survey class, the books I didn't want you to read in high school, banned and censored (laughs) books. And wow. Yeah, it was, it was a popular, I never let myself repeat a theme for more than three semesters. I always had to keep myself fresh in my themes. Well, that's, that's a wonderful quality in a professor. I think it's important. I, I think if, if you've got to blow the dust off your notes and you're pulling out that same old book, you can't expect your students to be any more excited about it than you are at that point. Yeah, no, I think that's true. So, you know, I had a few chestnuts on the list, Catcher and Arai, obviously. And there was a really cool anthology called Places We Never Meant to Be. It was a YA anthology. And um, Judy Bloom, actually, speaking of Judy Bloom, wrote the preface. And it's just a collection of works of authors. Um, Catherine Patterson, who wrote The Bridge to Terabithia, notably, mm-hmm. a few others, but all with little short pieces and all then with reflections on finding their work to be censored hmm. and their thoughts on it. And then the money all went to the, uh, I think it's the ACOA, the Organization to Protect Against Book Censorship. So I told my students that already you know, taking steps <laughs> and donating right. money. To the fight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And th- in teaching that class, I discovered a website, which you visit if you're feeling emotionally res- resilient, but also it's, it's a little humorous. It's called PABIS, P-A-B-B-I-S, Parents Against Bad Books in Schools. <laughs> 
Oh dear. And wow, it's so the alphabetization would well it, it was appalling to me, and it would be to any librarian because the articles were used as part of the alphabetization. So books that begin with A or the are under that <laughs> article. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's wow. Yeah, they, they had a quiz for determining whether or not you should request a book to be removed from your child's school. And I had my students like superimpose the quiz over their readings. And it's just this really kind of cool example that if you're approaching a text just with the eye of looking for that which may offend, yeah, you're going to find it. Yes, and I think there's also something sort of wrongheaded about thinking that it's actually a goal we should have to avoid offending people or having them be offended mm-hmm. and and to have to not have as a goal that people be resilient and go out into the world you know not being so blown over you know or by you know something that might offend them or something that might you know in quotes trigger them i mean i i, I feel like we should be encouraging young people and all of the rest of us, you know, to, to have greater resilience and not to be running around looking for ways to, that we're being offended or, or harmed. I I really strongly agree. I I struggle with the whole concept of trigger warnings. I I don't, um, meat for tea has never come with a trigger warning, nor have any of the books meat for tea press has published. And, um, it, it, it'd be uh, probably over my dead body that it does. Yeah, I think the trigger warning thing is very interesting. And I read that studies have shown that if you, if you tell um, students that they're going to read something that might be triggering to them, that it will actually be more triggering to them. Sure. And I also think that the job, you know, part of the job of literature is to provoke us and to, to provoke us to have feelings and to have thoughts that might disturb us or might set us on a different path of thinking. And so the idea that we want to create literature that isn't, you know, doesn't shake us up. Yeah, I just, I can't relate to that. Yeah. I, I, would not, I would never use trigger warnings either. Right. And, and I, I, yeah, I can't either. And I think that's the job, not just of literature, but of art. Yes. Visual yes. art, music, it, it should, something should happen to you. If you walk away and you, you feel just pleasantly neutral, which seems to be the overriding goal with the trigger warnings, right? Is that yeah. everyone feels pleasantly neutral at all times. I think that's a goal. And the other thing I don't like about it is I think that it infantilizes people. Oh, yes. It, it says to them, you're not strong enough to read this book about this topic um, or look at this, you know, this painting or this work of art. And that's something I find kind of funny about the, the efforts of the, um, the people on the right to ban books is that, and pull books, is that they must think that their children's morality rests on you know, very, a very flimsy foundation um, if they can't be you know, trusted to read you know, if my parents had thought something like that, I certainly wouldn't have been allowed to read Anne Sexton. 
And that was, it was really life-changing for me reading Anne Sexton. Oh yeah. So, so which Anne Sexton did you grab first? You know, I don't remember anymore. (laughs) So formative. Well, it was so long ago. And, um, I mean, it was a really long time ago because I'm 56 now and I was, I was 12. I was wondering if we're of an age. I'm a little bit older than you are. I'm 60. Yeah. Yeah. I figured the, the women in our age group, um, we aren't, not too many of us are all that keen on the trigger warnings and all of that. We grew, we grew up in the sticks and stones may break my bones era. We certainly did. And, you know, despite having read The Second Sex and The Naked Ape, I, did, I, did, <laughs> I didn't, didn't take to prostitution. I didn't like, <laughs> go hang out with baboons. I don't know what the result of those. And then after that, you know, getting my hands on Fear of Flying before being you know, old I, enough for a bra. Well, I, yes, but maybe you learned something from it. I remember in sixth grade reading, um, did you ever read the book Go Ask Alice? Oh, of course. And um, and I remember somebody complained to the librarian about that book and another book I don't remember the name of, and I, I had read both of them. And they somebody wanted them pulled from the library, and the librarian asked me, what my impressions were of those books. And I staunchly defended them. And, you know, I didn't, I hadn't felt traumatized by reading Go Ask Alice. I think Go Ask Alice, is, I think it's kind of been debunked by now. Yeah, it, you know, it's completely fake. It's it kind is, of but, hilarious. It comes out of a whole sort of um, very adjacent to satanic panic yeah. genre of writing uh, the, the teens and the drugs and, oh, this is the downward spiral, the slippery slope. Well, but there there is a slippery slope with drugs. Sure. And I, I knew people when at the at the time that I read Go Ask Alice who were on the slippery slope. And so I actually I really liked to have it in our library at school to read. And I, I, I understand it was, you know, it was written in an age of of hysteria, but I think some of it was also applicable to real life. And I'm glad it exists. I think it de- it deserves a space, and it mm-hmm. deserves to be there where a curious child can get their hands on it and have the experience of going wide-eyed at Alice's experiences. Yes. Definitely. I never know where these conversations are going to go, and I should tell you, we edit copiously in post, so if there's ever an author's name or a book you want to remind yourself of, you can certainly take the moment to do it. The pauses due to my sound engineer husband will magically all disappear. <laughs> okay, well, that's wonderful to know. Yeah, if you need a bathroom break, that all, all those pauses just go away. Um, you already heard me cuss once, so that should be your indication that we don't have any censorship of language all words are encouraged and accepted when you feel like you want to use them. <laughs> this is a safe space for the uncensored. Yes, it is. <laughs> it, I'm carving out that bastion. I hope it's not the last bastion, but here it is. <laughs> the only censorship we do engage in is um, the name of that, um, the previous guy, the, the 45th, 
orange oh yes person um the tangerine bad dream when his name is uttered we feel like we don't need to give him any more press so we we bleep his name out well i don't have any words left for him so yeah that will be okay with me yeah well if you did it'd be fine we'd just bleep it out and i think our listeners know by now if they hear that bleep they know what it was (laughs) That's hilarious. But motherfucker, everything else is welcome. Just, just not that name. <laughs> That's all it is. So where in Seattle were you reading today? So I read last night at the Elliott Bay Book Company. Oh, nice. And now I am in a suburb of Seattle called Redmond, and which is actually where the headquarters of Microsoft are. And so uh, most people would know Um, Redmond from that. Mm. And I lived in Seattle from, or the Seattle area from the time I was 12 until I was 24. And, um, and here in Redmond where I'm reading tomorrow night, I'm literally, I don't know about a a two minute walk from um, a place I used to work. And, um, and then I, I lived in Redmond for a very short time. And I'm not sure how close I am to where I lived then. But so it's sort of, it's, there's an oddness. And the town has changed so much. I, if someone had blindfolded me and driven me here, I would not have been able to guess where I was. Oh, wow. You know, the, all of the, the growth is just, it, I mean, it's been, it's been really incredible here. It's, it's not like, it's not at all the town it was before. So it's like, yes, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read tomorrow and then I have tonight just sort of off. Well, thank you for spending your night off with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, I'm very excited too. And um, I have a small dog at home. So this is a much, um, a much more reliably quiet environment. So it actually worked out really well. That's fantastic. My son actually lives in Seattle with oh, wow. two of my five grandchildren in the um, Ballard district of Seattle. Yeah, it's pretty nice. I haven't been out for a while. So what you must be experiencing there in Redwind, Redmond is sort of like a deja vu through a funhouse mirror. It's funny. It's so incredibly changed. It doesn't even feel like deja vu. Oh, wow. It feels... Like, like I came on the street that I used to, um, I used to drive on to get to work before I moved to Redmond. I'd, I'd drive from Kirkland to Redmond and I, it's completely unrecognizable. The sign that says, welcome to Redmond looks about the same, but they've built, um, you know, hotel, tall hotels and, um, and apartment buildings with several stories all along here. And um, the place I used to work is actually in a different building now, but still very close to where it used to be. Yeah, I know it's very strange. And it's strange to visit a place where one has been young. Yeah. Yeah, very strange. Yeah, we're, we're going to be releasing a book, a collection of short stories this summer um, by Jeffrey Feingold, the Black Hole Pastrami and Other Stories, it's called. Mm -hmm. And his 
his book launch is going to be at a bookstore in Walpole, Massachusetts, where I lived when I was in first grade. Um, wow. Yeah, first grade through sixth grade, sixth grade. I think I moved away when I was in sixth grade. Yeah, he he asked actually because I, I I do want to attend the the launch. He has remembered the name of my elementary school, <laughs> and I I, I don't. I, I remember that my address in first grade was twenty six Gay Avenue. Wow, I remember that. I remember that there is a balcony outside of my bedroom, probably more like a little upstairs porch, but in my mind, it was a balcony because there's a little neighborhood boy who would come and stand below it. And I had all kinds of Juliet visions of myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a sweet memory. Uh, yeah. I guess it was annoying to my parents. Um, he had the most poetic name too, Johnny Homer. Wow. Isn't that cute? Well, Johnny Homer, that could also have been an aspirational name. Your parents might have been nervous. Well, I think he was annoying because, um, you know, little kids, first graders, wake up very early. It's a stage in life where it really doesn't bother you to get up at the crack of dawn. And there'd be a little knock at the door at maybe 6.30 in the morning, a Saturday morning. And there would be little Johnny with just a bouquet of whatever wildflowers he'd picked around the neighborhood. Oh, I was imagining when you were in sixth grade. This is when you were in first grade? First grade. Oh, that's so dear. Isn't it so cute? Yeah, there is, he had a rival. There is, and then we're going to get back to you and your book, but this is cute. There's, there's Johnny Homer and Tommy Zarba. Wow, you started off with excellent names isn't it, among your students. Isn't it funny? Yeah, well, Johnny, I guess the first grade teacher asked who lived near my house that could walk me home <laughs> from school, which I needed because I, I still am possessed of a appalling sense of direction, and I most certainly would have gotten lost in the... Um, <laughs> It was probably three blocks, maybe. So he volunteered right away. And then um, Johnny Zarba lived at the end of our street, and his father owned Zarba's Bottled Drinks. Wow. So soda. And he'd promised me all, uh, all the cream soda I wanted, which is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> and there was actually a little, like, backyard fight the, the, between the boys and I chose Johnny Homer and passed up um, the promise of a lifetime of cream soda on the house so that's a <laughs> funny story well and that that was love <laughs> yes the, the little boy with the wilted dandelions yeah they get you every time he was cute I, I just remember um, well I mean most first graders happened to be but um I just remember those the uh, sprinkling of little like pinprick freckles over you know his nose and the top of his cheeks that that's pretty sweet looking very sweet <laughs> <laughs> anyway so there's there's that whole 
walk down memory lane and I'm going to be going to this bookstore in Walpole. And, you know, I don't know when I've been there last. I don't, I don't think maybe since I was like 11 or 12. So I, I'm, I'm fairly certain I'll have an experience kind of similar to what you're having now. I know I lived here when I was a kid, but nothing about it looks the same. Yeah, I just read a couple of nights ago in Spokane at a wonderful bookstore called Auntie's Books. And it's really a world-class bookstore. And I lived in Spokane. I was born there and lived there till I was two and a half. And then we moved back again when I was in fifth grade and moved away 18 months later when I was in sixth grade. And I was right in the neighborhood. I didn't actually see my old elementary school which um, I do remember was called South Pines Elementary. Oh, wow. So I didn't see it, but I was I was right there. But that area was not as changed as Redmond is. So I'm not sure. How, you might not have as much change in Walpole. It remains to be seen. Yes. We will find out. And I wish I would have known. I, 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 I could have told my son to try to attend your reading. I should have asked you, like, what's your itinerary? Oh, oh, that's okay. I think uh, it's a lot to ask a son to attend a poetry reading, unless he loves poetry. He he loves books. He's an avid reader. All 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 three of my kids are avid reader, and all five of the grandchildren are, except for the very youngest, um, Lewin, who's just seven, is just sort of getting into reading a little bit. Simple things. Yeah, there's plenty of time. Yeah. Definitely. So I have been reading What Small Sound, and I have been blown away. Thank you. Oh, I absolutely love it. And do you take requests? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, I marked a few a few poems, but um, what did I know? So this poem is especially moving to me now because my mom died about two and a half months ago. I'm so sorry. Thank you. And I, I like to tell people who maybe not may not be um, familiar with poetry that the title is from um, a poem by Robert Hayden, and it's called Those Winter Sundays. And he ends the poem with the lines, What did I know? What did I know? of love's austere and lonely offices. I remember that one. What did I know? By 14, I had lost all patience with her careful makeup, the fact that she ate cattle and swine and poultry, and said when asked that she would gladly kill anyone who tried to hurt me. She shaved her legs and had not read the diaries of Aeneas Nin, or Johnny Got His Gun, or the ballad of the Lonely Masturbator. Failings I ticked off silently in the car beside her. Those afternoons she drove me to the orthodontist she could not afford, so he could close the gaps in my mouth, coax my eye teeth from their Count Dracula positions, and give me, finally, the smile that would oil the hinges on so many of the world's doors. 
She cleaned up after construction workers to pay for it. Paint thinner, stripping her skin raw when she used it to clean spatters from the windows. For two years, my mouth ate up what might have gone for her to have new shoes or her own dentist. When her tooth abscessed, she waited it out, swollen and hunched in our kitchen, a woman pummeled by her love. Wow. Just... Yeah, I think... Oh, go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, it's funny. I I just remember whenever I um, look at that poem... The, the moment I really realized how much my parents had done for me and sacrificed for me. Um, and it was, you know, when I first was a mom and you suddenly realize, you know, all the things that you're doing for your baby, somebody did for you. Mm. And, and it, you know, even parents who, you know, maybe you don't get along or you hold a grudge against, you know, someone did very hard work to keep you alive and feed you and clothe you. And so I, I think of that whenever, you know, and I was thinking of that when I wrote the poem. And now when I read it, that's what I think of. Yeah, it's it's just so powerful. And I, I also love the adolescent scorn. Oh my gosh, <laughs> adolescent scorn. And then, as you know, someday you become you know, the target of it. Oh, gosh. Yes. Now that my daughters, well, I've got three, my my son and the two daughters, all grown, all with kids of their own. So now they're best friends, but oh, the low esteem they held me in when they were teenagers. Yes. I think it's not really avoidable. It isn't. And it doesn't matter if you're a slim pretty grad school educated college professor mommy or what kind of a mommy you are, you're an embarrassment to them. Yes. No matter what, it, it, it doesn't matter. You are embarrassing. Yes. <laughs> the most embarrassing person. Please walk 10 feet behind or 10 feet in front, but don't let people know that we're walking together. Please, mommy. Yes, or maybe just don't show up at all. Maybe stay stay in the car. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, that's funny. I have a son and two daughters also. Oh, wow. What's the order? Uh, my son is oldest and the daughters come after him. Same. Wow, that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah, my, my son actually, April 19th, turned 41. Wow. I have old, old kids. Yeah, my son turned, he's 29 now. So we're a bit behind you. No no grandchildren yet. Well, I might have started kind of young. Yeah, how old were you? I, I mean, I guess if I could do the math. No, that's okay. I'm not going to ask you to do math. Who likes to do math? No one likes to do math. Well, well certainly, certainly not poets, generally. <laughs> generally speaking, I mean, maybe there are some math head poets, but I, I'm not one of them. I was 19. Yeah, that was an early start. It was a, a young start. Yeah, I was, I did a good job, I think, but I was such a girl, such a girl. Yeah, I think then you grow up alongside the children. But I, you know, I had my son when I was 26, about to turn 27, and I still really had an awful lot of growing up to do. Oh, then. sure. Yeah. Sure, that's still 
really quite young. I remember when they were all, all still needing me to cut fingernails and toenails and just thinking to myself, 60 nails <laughs> to keep up with, <laughs> 60 nails. I, you know, it's funny. My two older kids, they were 11 and 9 when we had what I call the girl who came late to the party. And, um, mm-hmm. and so I didn't ever think of it like that because I didn't really, I didn't have to do those things for my older kids by the time the youngest was born. But that is a lot of nails. It's a lot of nails. Well, maybe I didn't have to do it for my oldest. It just, I, I felt like I was always... Well, you still had to imagine, or you had to keep track of it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did a lot of my schooling with with little kids. Wow. So it was, yeah. But in a way, I'm, I'm glad for it, especially when I was doing grad school, when I was working on the, the doctorate, which I didn't finish... But um, I watched some of my colleagues kind of float away into this very ethereal land of um, just theory. Yeah. Just just float off into this intellectual stratosphere and making sure tangles were out of people's hair and toenails weren't long and sharp and keeping track of baths and everyone had clean underwear and socks in their drawers, I think kept my feet on the ground and kept me from floating off into that place. And I'm, I'm, it it probably made my studies harder, but I'm still grateful for the grounding. Yeah, I think that would be true. I I would not have had it in me to, to, to have an undertaking like that going on while I was raising kids. Um, So I really admire that. But I agree with you. I think that grounding in, in the you know the physicality of raising children, and and I don't know, they're just so present and real. You know, definitely not theoretical. Exactly, and it's it's a good balance too. You know, when you're reading dense literary theory, maybe you're reading some Kristeva. But later that same day, and you don't know you're going to have these words come out of your mouth, but you find yourself saying, no, you can't sit on the kitchen counter with your feet in the sink to wash them. Yeah. And kids will have these moments where it's just like, why does your hair smell like dirt? Oh, were you hanging upside down on the swing again? (laughs) Okay. Or hearing your youngest in her bathtub singing at the top of her lungs, the moldy peaches, who's got the crack. <laughs> truly wonderful. I wish I'd recorded that. Yeah, that, I mean, that would have been one for for posterity, for sure. Right? So you had your three pretty close. No, you had them pretty spaced far apart, actually. Well, the first two were close. They were um, two years apart. and that then close. But then... I had fertility issues and I never could get pregnant again. And then suddenly when my children, you know, were 10 and eight, I I got pregnant suddenly out of the clear blue sky, it felt like. And so then when, by the time the baby was born, they were 11 and almost exactly nine. Yeah. So there was a big gap. Yeah. What were you doing while, while the kids were little, 
were you writing then too? Were you? Um, you know, I really, I really didn't write for the first nine years. I was raising the first two, and some of that probably was that um, we have quite a bit of mental illness in my family, and um, one of my stepsons was very, very sick for, mm. and I, I was the person who was really in charge of taking care of him for um, close to four and a half years. And so I had the two small children and then um, the mentally ill stepson. And so I really didn't have the space. No. To, um, to, and then um, my stepson got better and he was able to move out, you know, nearby. And so we, we had to keep an eye on him, but it wasn't the daily uh, care and watching. And then when the kids were finally really settled in school, you know, then I did start to write again. And I, I was I was getting going. I'd you know, I'd started submitting and I was starting to make a little headway and um and then I got pregnant again. Mm. And so um but that time with the third child, I really made a much bigger commitment to myself that even though it would be slow and I wouldn't be able to do too much, I would keep, you know, writing little by little and um and I would continue submitting my work you know, which I had started, I guess, I think I started submitting my work when I was about 36. And so I had, um, my youngest when I was 38. And so I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't work very, very quickly, but I did keep working then. And then I was able to really speed up once my youngest was in, um, in first grade. And now you've got books. Yeah, now this is my second book. And then I have a book I translated from German that's coming out, um, in August. And so um, I'm very excited about that. What's what's that one called? It's called Whoever Drowned Here. And who's the author? Well, it's a selection of, um, well, it's a new and selected um, a group of poems by a German author named um, Max Zessner. You really would say his name, Max Zessner. But I admit I've fallen into the habit of calling him Max, like most people do in the, in this country. And um, so I'm very excited about his book. He's a, an incredible poet, and I have I've been working on on translating his poems. I know, maybe four and a half years or so, and um, yeah, yeah, I think four and a half years. And it's just been one of my favorite things I've done in my whole life. So you're fluent in German. You know, I once was fluent in German when I was young, and um, I'm I'm relatively fluent in German. My um, receptive German is much better than my expressive German at this point. Mm. I haven't spoken German, you know, with any regularity for many years. And um, German grammar is very challenging. Yes. And so I find it hard in conversation to try to formulate um, the sentences and put them together. So, you know, I, I can still get a, a decent sentence together, but I think there's a bit of a delay. You know, it's like a delayed broadcast. <laughs> German, uh, 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 um, ich um die Universität, uh, ich, ah, ja, um, aber ich verloren zu viel, ich muss studieren, but, um, the declensions will get you. I can Holy moly. I can speak enough to get myself in trouble and German people will get very impressed and start firing off rapid fire at me. And um I, I 
I have ein bisschen Deutsch. <laughs> yeah, and I imagine that your receptive German would still be very good. And the, the thing that kills me is, um, you know, the articles, the gendered articles for the nouns. Dirty, dusty, damned, yeah. And so, and you, if you don't know the, you know, if you've forgotten the article for the noun, you cannot construct the sentence properly. And, um, and that just dogs me. Yeah. And I, I keep meaning to just, I, I, in fact, I, I, I did start to sign up for some, um, some lessons where, you know, I would just, I really need uh, conversation practice, but I haven't followed through yet. I, I got too busy with other things. Understandable. There's actually a very cool podcast, and I'll, I'll email it to you, but it's called Learn German Through Music. Mm. And the host picks a rock song, punk song, pop song, whatever she's drawn to at the moment by a German band with the German lyrics, and then breaks it down. Hmm. with a guest. It's really fun and it's kind of a cool way to refresh. Oh yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. And we'll be back in just a moment. We have a very generous partner to meet for tea. We really appreciate them very much because mm -hmm. it's through ad support that we stay in print. So without further ado, let me tell you about Sucre Bay. Sucre Bay is perfume made by weirdos like you. And they're a cruelty-free, women-owned indie perfume and body products company who love making people smell good. Each scent is crafted by hand in their Washington State lab located in the woods. And honestly, I don't know where else you can find fragrances with names like Sea Hag, Don't Panic, Siren Song, Goth as Fuck. Those are just a few of their bestsellers. So great. They have all sorts of other things to bath care products. And also they, they partner with a lot of interesting people, including our friend Sarah McCartney of 4160 Tuesdays. Sucre Bay is one of the few places in the States you can get yourself some 4160 Tuesdays fragrances. Yes. So head on over to sucrebay.com. Check out their wares. And we thank them Check for... Check the show notes for the proper spelling. Mm-hmm. And thank you very, very or much, should I do it on Sucre Bay. now? Oh, yeah. You know what? How's it spelled? Yeah. So if you just go to S-U-C-R-E-A-B-E-I-L-L-E.com, that'll get you there. Yeah. We really appreciate their support. Thank you so much, Sucre Bay. Thank you so much, Sucre Bay. We love you. And welcome back. So we're going to hear some Max. What's his last name again? Zessner. Zessner. Z-E-S-S-N-E-R? S-E-S-S-N-E-R. Uh, -S -S -E oh, nice. Of course, Zess. Yeah. Okay. Swimming. Now it is still on the little lake, mid-August. The shadows have deserted the trees and have first wandered to the shore and then dived under to the bottom. It makes the water light. If one approaches from the village, the lake in the distance 
looks like an eye that stares into the sky. Beginning in August, it's the melancholy that drives me to go swimming after work. Until far into the dusk, I lie on my back and let myself be carried. See on land the beacons of the cigarettes. Whoever drowned here, always, years after, came back. Wow. That is so cool. Now he's he's really amazing. The images. Yes, the images. And then um, he has this way, which I really lack in my work. I'm a very literal poet. And he has a way of working um, in in kind of a, a light surrealism or, or magical realism. Yes. Like what was that line that the lake that looks like an eye? Yeah, so if one approaches from the village, the lake in the distance looks like an eye that stares into the sky. That's just wonderful. Just so evocative. Yeah, the beacons of the cigarettes also is so good. And then um, I took the title from that, um, those last lines, whoever drowned here always years after came back. And he, he does he does that a lot where he he plays with tenses and there are a lot of ghosts in his poems. Ooh. Yeah, he's he's um here, I'll, let me read you one other. His poems are usually very short. Oh, please do. I, I, I really like this this writer. I'm excited for this translation. Yeah, this has ghosts in it. Nice. Apparitions. Today I saw you on the street as an old woman. You walked past me, and I, who died before you, saw myself mirrored in your glasses as a young man. You looked right through me with a gaze as if from an open window, out of which you will soon jump, down onto the street in front of a moving car whose driver looks like me. Oh, wow. And I, I love how he, he, he just really plays with time so beautifully and regrets and, and the way it seems in his poems, really, that, that the entirety of a person's life is being lived really um, simultaneously. And, um, and also that, you know, even after you die, then there's this existence that carries on. Yeah, he, he's really, he's, he's very, he's magical, I guess is how I feel about him. Uh, I'm entranced. When is this translation coming out again? It comes out on August 22nd. I'm so excited. God, if you could get permission to publish a couple excerpts from that. Oh. Um, I would be thrilled. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I have some um, some of the poems that are still available that haven't been published yet. Oh yes, yes, they're, yeah, they're in manuscript. So I, I'd, I'd be more. I'd love to send you some. I, I would love to publish them. I mean, my deadline is the twenty seventh. I think it's actually the twenty eighth, but I'm telling people the twenty seventh. Yeah, I'm going to remember it as the twenty seventh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you you can consider it a solicited submission because, well, it is. Here I am soliciting. Well, thank you. So you don't have to send it through my submission manager. You can send it straight to the email. The, the only difference is in the submission manager, I have a 
$4.75 fee, which almost but not quite covers the cost of posting physical print contributors' copies all over North America. Yeah. I'll probably send it through the submission manager. <laughs> I know for my, no, well, for myself, when, um, when I'm accepting submissions at one place or another, um, I really prefer them to go through the submission manager because it's, it's easy for things to get lost in email. I, I try to keep track. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm projecting my own, <laughs> my own frailties. I can't believe we've already been talking for an hour. I feel like I could just hang out with you. I know. I feel like I've like I know you already. I know. I know. Well, I like these to be sort of as if we had gotten together over like dinner and drinks, and we're just having a visit. Interspersed. Yeah, no, that, I noticed that when I was listening. Yeah, they're very cozy and feel. I, I like cozy. It's kind of cozy with cusses. Exactly, cozy with cusses. <laughs> the best kind of cozy. I'm wondering if I could request another poem. I, I seem to have marked just a little cluster close together. There's so many that I love so much. And you, you do share, at least in my estimation, an affinity with Sexton. just Well, thank you. She was a big influence. It shows in a very good way. Well, thank you. But um, Dusk, the day I drove my child to the partial hospitalization program. Okay. If you don't mind me making requests, like you're a, oh, no, no. Like you're a poetry jukebox. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be a poetry jukebox. <laughs> That's actually not a bad mm-hmm. anthology title. It isn't. You're, you're spitting out the titles today. <laughs> okay. Dusk, the day I drove my child to the partial hospitalization program. The tree's branched open work is bare, exposed by autumn's fret saw. Color shines through the blank spaces, color of days closing like doors, one by one, against me. I pause having emptied properly my little bucket of food scraps and wheeled the trash cans, relieved of their stinking loads, back into place, snug against our house. I think of how succulents compost their own bodies, hold water in each thick leaf, sit tidy in pots I've placed carefully on my clean-swept porch. And did I tell you how useless it all is before the ravages of the starved synapse. Even the bread I bake doesn't help, despite its wild rising, its very fine crumb. Orchids on their bright sill, reliable, open their freckled faces. No small feat this reblooming, when too much care is as dooming as too little. I do everything meticulously, walk motherhood's narrow ledge, and still stand, watching light fade through the oak's snarled tracery, watching it wane as the sky goes from rose to pink to pale. It ends up black no matter. The tree's outlines engulfed each night by the dark. Mm. So much of a gut punch, but yeah, also so 
peaceful at the end. It was, a bleak calm. Yeah, a bleak calm. That's perfect. <laughs> it yeah. is. That, that summarizes the evening. Are you also, so you bake bread? I do bake bread. Me too. Wow. <laughs> we were somehow um, separated at birth. We both speak um, German. We both bake bread. We both have a boy and two girls. In the same order. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm a, a sourdough bread baker, a very regular one every week. As a matter of fact, tomorrow morning, I'll get up and make 11. Wow. How did you come to bread baking? Well, I mean, I've, I've always cooked. I've, I've, I've cooked. I remember wanting to cook and wanting to do grand things in the kitchen, starting when I was very little, some of them not going so well, but I was just determined. And, um, I was a pretty decent yeasted bread baker, but I was really interested in just the whole art and science of sourdough bread and got my hands on some leaven and had some disastrous door stopper <laughs> loaves. Like just, just so fit only to go out onto the yard, you know, for squirrel food, really. I think a lot of um, early loaves are like that. Well, th there are things I didn't know. Then I, then I discovered... Um, I, I was subscribing to Cooks Illustrated and I'd received some starter from, oh, the, my starter is storied. My Tibetan Buddhist monk cousin gave me sourdough starter he got from his mom, my aunt Priscilla, who got it from her neighbor, Gisela Moffat, <laughs> who before she started the starter in this country, but she had years ago uh, escaped the Nazi scourge in the Eastern Europe. So it's got this, it's wild. But um, it happened right around when I got that, the issue of Cook's Illustrated that came had very easy instructions for starting a starter, maintaining a starter, it had a no-need sourdough loaf. And so I did that. Then they had a more advanced recipe for penelivan. So I did that. Then I got into it harder and got um, Tartine Bread, which is my Chad Robertson's book. It's it's my Bible for sourdough bread baking. Then got serious and got my Lodge cast iron combo cooker and my thermometers and my scale and my proofing box. And it's, it's just, I've been baking every week for eight years now I guess yeah. yeah it's just it's it's the only bread we eat because I'm a terrible bread snob now well you're much more um technical and um serious about it than I am I, I don't have all that equipment I've never tried sourdough I, I've just baked yeast breads there's nothing wrong <laughs> with a good yeast bread no no of course and like Irish soda bread you know the those types the of quick breads, breads. That are, yeah yeah and I came to baking bread um, because my mom used to bake bread when I was a kid. Mm. And, and so then I used to love to bake bread with my children when they were little. Aww. And I, I still love to bake bread now. I don't do it as often as you. I tend to do it more on occasions. 
And um, I make one of my favorite breads I make is the monkey bread. Oh, yes. For Christmas morning. And that's a really wonderful, very elastic yeast dough, you know, that then you then roll in butter and sugar and cinnamon. And yeah, I think the Brits call it tear and share bread. Share and share, exactly. I mean, if you watch the Great British Baking Show, <laughs> which I, I do. I have watched that, um, but not regularly. And I haven't heard tear and share. There's, there's a kid's one too, junior Great British Baking Show. It's, it's pretty charming. There's something about we children with British accents that's that's very adorable. Yeah, it is. Those shows, I think, are really good. And I think they help to um, to get the next generation interested in in cooking yeah. and baking. Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, cooking is just... Well, I, I think the only reason I'm so regular is because your starter needs to be maintained and fed. So this is really my lazy way of doing it. Just keep it in the fridge, feed it once a week, do the week's bake, and then that leaven becomes the new fed starter and just keep the cycle going. Yeah, my mom used to bake sourdough when I was a kid, so I remember the starter in the refrigerator. Yeah, yeah blue tape is part of part of my life. I'll label the jar with the date. Yeah. So I know. How lovely. God, we have so many things in common. I know. It's such a strange coincidence. It, it, it is pretty wild. I feel like I should move us to the next phase. And this is the only part where I ask any questions. I have three questions. Okay. I ask every single guest because, yeah, we could otherwise just keep talking into the wee hours of the night. What are you reading these days besides Max? So right now I am reading a book called An Immense World, and mm. it is it's by Ed Yong, and it is about the sensory systems of all different kinds of animals. Oh, wow. And I'm not very far into it, but I've always had a weakness for animal behavior. And then, of course, as a poet, I'm very interested in the senses. And um, so it's an incredible book. I had started it before my mom died, and I'm just returning to it now about two and a half months later because it was hard for me to concentrate very well on it. Of course. Um, and then I'm also on the side reading a book um, called On Poetry and Craft, which are essays by Theodore Rutke. Oh, wow. I love Rutke. Oh, yeah. And then I'm in Seattle, which is you know where he had his career at the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I love his work and I had never read this book. And so, um, so that's a book that I brought that one with me. Um, an immense world is a fairly immense book and I didn't want to pack it. How immense are we talking? Like 400 pages? Um, I think probably about that. A, a and even, yeah. And then I bought the hardcover and so it's, you know, it's, it's very, um, it's just very heavy. Is it? Oh, it's it is, it's four hundred and eighty-five pages. That's a tome. Yeah, that would weigh a lot in your luggage. Yeah, and it's it's big enough. I didn't want to carry it onto the plane. Uh, uh-uh, I don't blame you. That sounds. Yeah, but Ted was he was he was planable. Yeah, very much more portable. That sounds so intriguing. I, I think I want to read that. It's a wonderful book. It's beautifully written and incredibly well researched, and it's very eye-opening because. 
he points out, um, the author does, how dependent humans are on, on our vision and that the way we perceive the world is really very, very limited because we depend so heavily on vision. And But he gives, like for instance, the example of dogs. And dogs are actually most dependent on their sense of smell. Mm-hmm. And so um, even a blind dog really has sort of what we would think of as, in quotes, a picture of a room because it creates a map of the room with its, with its nose. And, and, so, and that's very hard for us to conceive of. And, and so I think, I actually think reading this is going to help give me maybe some new perspectives uh, for writing, you know, new ways of engaging with, um, with sensory imagery. Oh yeah. It would have to, right? Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm very excited about the book and I'm, I'm glad I'm feeling um, better enough to concentrate on it. I'm glad you are too. And I'm so sorry again. That's another thing we have in common. My, my mother is also passed only she died in 1998. Oh, so you've been a long time without your mom. When she was, yeah, she was just past her 60th birthday. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, thanks. It's it's much easier now. Well, it's easy now, but I I have to say one thing that has, it surprised me about this grief, which has been, unpleasant in in many parts but i've just been overwhelmed by this sense of gratitude that i was loved so much and so well by by my mother Aww. and and i love her so much and so i mean i hope it was so well i have my doubts now um you know you have those all those kind of doubts and regrets um but also i feel so grateful i had her you know until i was 56 and she was 80 and um, I don't, I, I just don't take that for granted. Yeah, so I'm sorry you lost your mom so early. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I was 36. Wow. Yeah, second year of the PhD program. And, and with three children. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a thing. Yeah, boy, my hat's off to you, Elizabeth. <laughs> well, hat's off to you, too. So what are you listening to these days? What's, what's, what are you putting into your ears? What am I listening to? You know, um, I, I listen to, I just, am always listening to sort of a playlist that I have and I put it on shuffle all the time. Hmm. And it has, um, you know, it has just a fairly weird assortment of things. And, um, and so I listen to that quite often. And then I listen as far as like a whole album. I have an album um, made up of Telemann trumpet concertos. I love Telemann. Oh my gosh. And I know very little, almost not. I, I mean, really, I know nothing about classical music. I don't play music. I'm not educated um, really in, in any one thing, but certainly not in music. But I had this old neighbor um, and after his wife died unexpectedly, he was about 80. And he used to come to my house um, for dinner every night. He lived right next door. Mm. And he was completely lost that whole first year. And he really knew a lot about classical music and opera. And he um, bought me some of these just very listenable, you know, collections of classical music. And um, the Telemann 
trumpet concertos. Um, that's one of the things that he he gave me as a gift, and so um, so I I listened to those uh, quite a bit. So it's been really just that um, and and my my kind of weird playlist. What's and, in the weird playlist? I'm very so, curious. Uh, you know, we've got um, let's see, we've got Beyonce, nice. Justin Bieber. Sam Smith, Don Henley, the Eagles. Um, I've got a little Lana Del. What is? I'm sorry, Lana Del Rey. Some U2. Um, it's eclectic. It is, and um, I've got. You know, I, I don't. I just. I just really like all different kinds of music. Um, so I've got a little country music. I've got some older music. Um, one thing I've loved about having children is I keep up just a tiny bit with what's coming out that's new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've got some Taylor Swift. I do really, I favor songs that tell a story, definitely. Yeah, so it's kind of a, a, weird, a weird collection. I've got some Fleetwood Mac, some Ed Sheeran, some Phoebe Bridgers, Bright Eyes, <laughs> Jason Isbell, <laughs> Sounds Bruce like- Springsteen. Yeah, I don't know. I just, whenever I hear a song, um, then I just add it um, to my list and... And it's what I play. It's, it's, it's actually my only playlist. Um, and it's called Mom Running Playlist. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you my, my, my son. Well, we have a lot of albums here. I mean, I am married to a sound engineer if we've got. Yes, you have a very sophisticated ability to listen to music available to you. We have 2,000 albums. Whew. <laughs> That's incredible. And my son also has a vast collection of albums. All of my kids actually are vinyl collectors and bibliophiles. But he makes kind of like the a version of a mixtape, but from his vinyl collection with a different theme every week. Wow. And every year. That is yeah, it's called May It Howl. I'll send you the link. Oh yes, I would love that. It's it's pretty wild stuff. It's pretty great. And they're very eclectic. You'll hear everything from country to like old blues to something very contemporary. They're 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 eclectic. I will love that. So more playlists for you. I'll make it happen. What are you watching these days? Uh I you know, I am not a big watcher. <laughs> Um, I, I, I start, so the thing I've most recently watched, um, is my youngest daughter started me watching, um, it's one of the, I don't remember which streaming service it's on, um, but it might be Netflix, but it might not, but it's, um, The Bear. Oh, yes. Have you seen yes. that? And I, I really like it, but I'm actually not a big watcher. That's why you've got books coming out. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think, um, I'm, I'm really sensitive. And so I think that often watching things, um, can be overwhelming. And then, um, I, I prefer, I, I don't know, I prefer to read or I like to sew, I embroider. And, um, I, I often think if I lived alone, I don't think the, I, I'm not sure I would have a television. And if I had one, I don't know that it would ever go on. I don't really know how to work our television. I can do, you know, I can do the voice control. Okay. The Comcast voice control. Mm. 
but I don't know how to get over to YouTube or any of the kind of fancy maneuvers that my family members know how to do. That's kind of great, especially for a writer. I I will watch TV and I actually reward myself after I get a new issue of Meat for Tea out with, um, I go very lowbrow, with a new season of whatever my favorite city of Real Housewives is at the moment. So I go, I go for the straight up trash. You know, this is so weird that you would mention the Real Housewives because my husband, who is, he's older than I am. He is 77 and he's a brilliant man. And he normally doesn't really, I don't think of him as being attracted to lowbrow you know, entertainment, but he's, he's fascinated by the real housewives Me too. and he will watch, um, he'll just kind of, I don't think he really follows any one city, but he'll kind of just pop in. And so I'll often be sitting next to him. And, um, so I do actually catch a fair amount of real housewives. Oh, that's so funny. And, um, and I find, I, I don't know, I find it is fascinating. Um, sometimes it's a little painful to watch. Um, as, as a woman of a certain age, mm-hmm. I feel sometimes just a pang that um, women are, you know, modifying ourselves so much as we age. So much. The yeah. lips, the lips are really disturbing. The, the collagenated, inflated lips. That's Yes, the lips and, and the fillers. Mm-hmm. And I think... And the silicone... Yes. And what I've tried to do for myself as um, I age is I try to ask myself always about anything. Does it hurt? And, and even if it is uncomfortable, I'm not interested because I feel like I shouldn't want to hurt myself in order to avoid looking my age because I feel like that's almost a, like it's a form of harassment coming from the culture. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel judgmental so much toward like those, the women, the real housewives, but I feel a bit of pain thinking that they feel they need to do those things. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I, I have learned to be grateful that I have actually a bleeding disorder. So, um, Elective surgeries are completely out of the question. Actually, for me to get surgery is a whole entire big deal where I need to get like a a, a workup of this thing called stymate so I don't bleed out. So um, just casually going in for fillers or breast augmentations or a facelift, that's all completely off the table. It's nothing I can even consider. And I really feel like that's a silver lining to having that bleeding disorder is that's just off the table. I can't even think about that stuff. It's not a consideration. That is is a silver lining. Isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I think so. I I have um, retinol skin cream for night. You know, I'll I'll do, I'll do stuff like that. Sunblock during the day, but um, nothing, nothing more extreme than that. No, thank you. I accidentally, about maybe four years ago, um, I, I was at the dermatologist to get a skin cancer check. And she has, my, my, I love my dermatologist, and she has 
you know, place a little office within her office where you can buy skincare lotions and potions and, mm-hmm. you know, really good sunblock. And they offer facials there. And I didn't understand that a person can give a give these um, these like microdermabrasion and needling and all of that sort of thing. I thought a doctor had to do that. And so I made an appointment for a facial and and I was lying there and before I knew it, um, I was having some, like, I think they gave me some kind of a, an acid peel oh, and, no. and I think there was microdermabrasion going on. I'm really not sure exactly what I had, but I was in so much pain oh, for no. the, really about the next week because it's as if you have badly burned yourself. And it really was, um, I mean, I'm kind of glad to have done it, to, I, I, to have had the experience of it um, because I knew I didn't want to do those things, but I didn't realize how uncomfortable it really would be. And um, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm trying hard to support myself in aging and, and, go, and, and, and I'm like you, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't mind for myself the creams or anything like that, but, but things that are more invasive or that leave me burned and peeling, you know, I, I, it's a hard no. Yeah. I like that rule. Does it hurt? And if so, I'll pass. That's a good rule. Do you know the German expression, um, wer schön sein will, muss leiden. You know, whoever wants to be beautiful must suffer. Yes. And, um, and I remember hearing that when I was a girl and it made such a big impression on me. And I want to, I want to fight against that, you know, that thing. I think there's room in our culture and I don't know why we haven't really embraced it as a culture, but I think there's room for coming to appreciate the beauty that is aging. Yes. And to understand that there's an aesthetic to that too that's that's in itself lovely. Yes. Yes. I hope so. I hope I hope we'll move more in that direction. Like I look at pictures of Georgia O'Keeffe. Uh, yeah. She was, I mean, she was a beauty though. You look at pictures of her and she's young. She was, she was a, quite a beauty. She had bone structure for days, but, but still as she got older and she's quite lined and aged, but so wonderful to look at such a beautiful, interesting face to look at. Yes. And, and there is the notion of, um, that your life is written on your face. Yeah. Um, Justine Bateman, um, have you read her book? It's just called Face. I haven't read her book, but I have seen her and I've seen her talking. She's done a few little things on YouTube and I, I, I salute her. Yeah. yeah. And she talks about how um, what her, the ways in which her face have changed, those reflect the experiences of her life. And she doesn't want to erase those. Oh, no, I love that so much. No, I think it was, um, wasn't it Catherine Hepburn who said, when you're 20, you have the face your parents gave you? <laughs> and I might be misquoting, I might be paraphrasing. I think it, it's when you're 50, you have the face that you deserve. Mm. So yeah. have you been like, scowling or smiling, I guess. 
but I love that so Although much. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that the end result is much different between a scowl and a smile. I think it might be. I think that the lines around the eyes would be different. Yeah. At least it's a fun thought that, that there's a difference. It is a fun thought. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amusing. So I would like you to tell people where you're reading next, where they can get your books, and where they can find and follow you on any social media that you may use. So my next two readings, I'm reading tomorrow night at Soul Food Cafe, and that's in Redmond, Washington. And I'm reading with Kate Gale, who's a wonderful uh, poet. And then my next reading after that is actually on Monday the 22nd, and that is going to be at Skylight Books. And that is a wonderful bookstore in Los Angeles. Mm. And I get to read with Douglas Manuel and uh, Rebecca Faulkner. And I'm really, really excited to read with Anders Carlson Wee. He's a favorite wow. poet of mine. And let's see where you can get my books. Um, you know, people always kind of um, bulk at Amazon, but it is a really easy way to order a book. Mm-hmm. And um, and this book is, um, this my new book is a hardcover. And so it's much cheaper with the postage situation if you order from Amazon. But you can order directly from um, from Red Hen, you know, Barnes and Noble, or um, I think it's called Bookshop, the, um, the oh, online yeah. book service. Bookshop.org. Yeah. Yeah. I use that. And you can always order, yeah, you can order it from um, your favorite independent bookstore. Yes. Just give them the ISBN <laughs> or even just the author yeah. and title and they'll get it for you. And they'll be able to find it. And then um, I do have a website you know, francescabellpoet.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, but I'm not very active on Facebook mm-hmm. right now. And um, I'm much better on Instagram. And I'm on Instagram pretty regularly. I have not been able to tolerate Twitter. Um, there's just so much vitriol there um, that I've, I was on there a short time. And then I just couldn't do it any longer. That's fair. I didn't know you were on Instagram. I should follow you. Yeah, I didn't know you were on Instagram either. You can see pictures of my bread. Yes, I want to see pictures of your bread. More. Ex- I will bake bread and, um, and, and post some pictures. We can, we can be mutual admirers of each other's bakes. Exactly. That'll be fun. And, and better than that, you can see pictures of grandchildren. Yes, and I can dream of my own someday grandchildren. <laughs> someday. I think my the youngest one of the five is seven, and no one's having any more babies. So now I'm now I'm just wishing somebody would just have just just one more baby. Now that all the baby creases and rolls and knuckle dimples have melted off. <laughs> I know the cheeks is that's what I miss. Well, luckily that the seven the, the the youngest is seven, and my. Youngest daughter's two boys are seven and eight. They're basically Irish twins, and <laughs> they still have they still have their their little cheeks a little bit. They still have some. Their, their bodies are quite slim, but they have nice cherubic faces still. Yes. Oh, so sweet. Oh, cheeks. Don't get me started on cheeks. I wrote a whole poem about kissing a baby cheek. Oh, the baby cheeks. I got to hold a baby. I got to hold a baby in Spokane. How wonderful. Because 
Yeah, Douglas Manuel, I've, um, we're pressmates and he has a new book out and I have a new book out. So we're making several appearances together. And he brought his adorable nine-month-old baby. Oh my goodness. To the reading and I got to hold him. Oh, how lovely. And he has cheeks for days, oh. as the young people would say. <laughs> how wonderful. Well, that is a lovely place for us to end this fabulous chat. We must, you, you have a standing invitation to come over for dinner whenever. Thank you. And you did too. Um, come, to, come to California. I, I lived there for a while. I lived in San Diego between the ages of 18 and 25. Wow. I've never lived in San Diego, but um, I live in the Bay Area. Beautiful. I would love to visit the Bay Area. And thanks so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much. It's been just wonderful. Oh, so lovely. I feel like we've just made friends. Same here. <laughs> lovely. Well, that was lovely. Wasn't that delightful? How cool is she? She's yeah. the best. Very, very, very cool. Super smart lady. I love how the two of you just kind of just clicked. It's like best friends. I love that. Yeah. We call it the Meet for Tea cast, but with some episodes, you just could call it, listen while Elizabeth makes a new friend. <laughs> it's probably about half of them, at least the ones where, where you're interviewing or not interviewing. You're having conversations with people who you haven't actually met. But no. Yeah. It's about, I don't know, maybe not half, but it's quite a few of the episodes. It's kind of cool. Sometimes reading a person's poetry or appreciating their artwork is a little bit like meeting them. Yeah, yeah. Get to know them through their art. Mm-hmm. Well, very good, very good. Thanks so much for sticking around. You know what to do if you like this, right? You're going to go straight on over to Apple Podcasts. You're going to leave a five-star review with writing. You're going to copy and paste that and plunk it right in Good Pods so I never check and see that we've sunk beneath number one in the indie performing arts category because then I will cry and... We don't want her to cry. That would be on you. Smash that subscribe button. <laughs> Share your favorite episodes with somebody who you think might subscribe like it. Subscribe to Meat for Tea. All that stuff. Get Meat for Tea in your mailbox. All the best mailboxes do. <laughs> with that, I'm going to sign off. We'll see you in a couple weeks. The Meat for Tea cast is produced by Elizabeth McDuffie and Meat for Tea, The Valley Review. Mixed by Mark Allen Miller at Sewn Lab, East Hampton, Massachusetts. Visit Meat for Tea at www.meatfortea.com. Please consider going to anchor.fm to make a contribution through our contribution page. You can reach us through meatforteacast at gmail.com or you can leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash meatforteacast. We welcome suggestions for contents for the Meat for Tea cast. If you've attended a Meat for Tea Cirque and want to hear from one of the bands or one of the spoken word contributors, please let us know. All portions are copyright Meat for Tea and their respective holders. Vote for Meat for Tea on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Elizabeth, Meat for Tea on Instagram, and on the Meat for Tea and Meat for Tea cast Facebook pages. Meat for Tea is available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts. <laughs>